passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxis. So if you're a visitor, I'm Kurt. I'm one of the pastors. And we are continuing this morning in our sermon series through the book of 1 Samuel. We are in 1 Samuel chapter 20. Please get out your notes uh, and get out your Bibles. Get ready for our study. While you're doing that, let me just remind you of what we've uh, learned so far in this book. <clears throat> We're at the point so far in this book where God has rejected King Saul and God has chosen to anoint young David, who is the coming and future king. And the process of the book right now is this sort of painful process where God is bringing Saul down and God is lifting David up. And Saul's not really excited about that. He's not sort of excited about God making less of him and sort of doing slowly away with him. We found that out right when we got to 1 Samuel chapter 17. Remember, that was the story of David and Goliath, where David went into the, the valley of Elah and using his sling and just one well-placed stone, he killed Goliath, the nine-foot, six-inch tool, metal-covered monster hairy man that had defied the armies of Israel. And in that moment, David went from complete obscurity to complete popularity. Everybody knew David. Everybody loved David, except for one person, King Saul, who was extremely jealous of David. And as we got to the next chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 18, that jealousy had brewed inside of him. And he actually started to try and kill David. Twice he tried to run him through with a spear. Then three times he set him up to die in battle, but... David just kept living. It's like hard to kill. One of those kind of guys. And David just gets more famous because you can't kill this guy. That brought us to where we were at last week with 1 Samuel chapter 19, which is four escape stories. Four stories of Saul once again trying to take David's life. But the focus in that David's life. Uh, first he did it three times with his in visible hands, how God uses people or things that would seem to be like fortunate circumstances and perfect timings to all of a sudden save David's life. What a reminder that God is involved in our lives. He is protecting us. And when we think, see things that happen in just split second right timing or a friend comes to our rescue and aid, those are not just chance coincidences. Those are God at work protecting his children. But in the last story, God decided to stop using his invisible hand and work with his very much visible hand through the power of the Holy Spirit. Saul sent three squads of soldiers to arrest David, but the Holy Spirit literally put sort of a spiritual force field around David. And as those soldiers get too close, they ended up just sort of starting to prophesy, sort of losing it all, then walking away. Then eventually, Saul said, if anybody needs to do this, it's me, because nobody can seem to get the job done. So he decided he'd go to kill David. And then the Holy Spirit decided to put him into a tractor beam and just reeled him in nice and slow, brought him right in front of Samuel and David, had Saul prophesy, strip himself buck naked, and then the Holy Spirit went and tasered him. 
Saul was out for 24 hours. Now you'd think if you're trying to kill a guy and it doesn't work, and now it's very obvious that God's protecting David and that the Holy Spirit has tasered you and you wake up and you're buck naked, you'd think, well, maybe I should rethink my plan a little bit. That maybe this is not a good idea. Unfortunately, Saul doesn't wake up repentant. He wakes up rather grumpy and he gets right back to trying to kill David. Now, when we turn the page to chapter 20, what we find is that while Saul is tased and he's out cold, David takes that as the opportunity to now run for his life. I'm not going to run far. He's only actually going to run two miles to Gibeah. But he's running to see his best friend. Remember his best friend? His name is Jonathan, Saul's own son. So this chapter is all about that relationship between Saul and, and David, or excuse me, Jonathan and David, and David in this time of stress and time of need. We're going to handle this message a little bit differently. Rather than giving you a bunch of points as we go through this text, I'm going to work our way through the text, maybe a, do a couple little applications along the way, and then I'm going to give you all the big applications here at the end. So let's go ahead and, and dive in. <clears throat> Then David fred, fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? What is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? Can anybody hear the panic in his voice? Stressed out, totally, like why is your dad constantly, repeatedly trying to kill me? What have I done? Now, this is a different David than we met in chapter 17. Chapter 17, when it came to the battle between him and Goliath, he walked into the valley confident that God would protect him, confident that things would be well, because he has defied the armies of the living God. Now David is sort of worn down. David is sort of tired. I mean, I think this is understandable. When somebody has tried to kill you more than a dozen times, don't you think that would wear on you for a little bit? Now, David knows that God has been protecting him, but still he's emotionally exhausted at this point. Can you relate? You ever been at that point where you know that Jesus Christ died for you? that you and I are the object of God's affection. We know we're the most blessed beings in the universe according to scripture, but then you have those long, really hard, difficult days, and emotionally you're just worn down. You may know the truth, but you don't really feel that truth. Anybody been there? Uh, hopefully it's not just me. All of us have been there. And if you've been there, you know exactly what David is like in this moment. Then the story continues with Jonathan. And he said to him, Oh, far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? Oh, it's, it's not so. Jonathan essentially says to him, Oh, I don't believe that. My dad and I were close. My dad shares everything with me. In the last chapter, Saul just made a promise to Jonathan 
that there was going to be peace between Saul and David. That Saul was going to do good for David. So Jonathan's like, yeah, you can't be telling the truth on this. I know my dad and that's not him. What we're about to find out is Saul is a very good liar. Apparently he has practice in not telling the truth. Somehow the attempts on David's life that we saw in the last chapter where Saul threw the spear at David and it lodged itself in the wall, somehow Saul took that spear out and covered up the plaster before anybody else saw it. Where Saul had soldiers outside of David's house and David's wife, Michael, who was actually Jonathan's sister, Remember, let him down and allowed him to escape. Somehow that information was kept from Jonathan that his own sister had helped David escape when his father was trying to take his life. He's hid all that. So Jonathan is having a hard time believing all this. But I guess you can say maybe Saul's a good politician, or at least a modern politician. Incidentally, while uh, Saul is a very adept liar, we'll find out a little bit later that Jonathan is not a good liar. He doesn't have a lot of practice on this one. And David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. David says, Jonathan, I'm not joking. I am dead serious. Your father is determined to kill me. He's just hidden it from you so you don't see it. I'm like that close to death. One step. And if you've been with us earlier in the series, you know that is literally true. Not just metaphorically true. It was one step away from dying when that spear ended up in the wall instead of David's stomach in the last chapter. Well, if you're Jonathan and your best friend is freaked out, your best friend is in desperate need at this point, what would you say? Like, what can I do to help you? And that's exactly what Jonathan says. Then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do it for you. And David is going to share a plan. And he believes this plan will reveal to Jonathan and to the rest of the world Saul's true feelings about David that he's kept hidden from everyone else and Saul's true plans for David. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. And if your father misses me at all, then say, Well, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. And if he says, Well, good, it'll be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Let's address the obvious challenge in this little section. What David has just asked Jonathan to do is to lie to his father. The scripture is telling us what happened. It is not telling us here what should happen. 
It is not saying children lie to your parents, especially when your friends tell you to lie to your parents. That's not what it's saying we should follow. It's just giving us some observations of how things happen. What we also need to remember is Jonathan, or David is super stressed at this point. Remember, he is completely stressed out. I don't think he's making the right decisions. I don't think he's maybe doing things the right way. But you know, sometimes God can use things even if we don't do them exactly right. And that's exactly what will happen here. Uh, oh, incidentally, the new moon. I'll tell you a little bit about that since you'll run across that in Scripture. New moon is a mini feast day in that culture. It's like a mini Thanksgiving. The idea is everybody gets around the table for the new moon dinner. And what's expected is that David, because he is actually the king's son-in-law, would be there for the family meal. To show you this, let me turn you to Psalm 81, verse 3. It says, blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon, on our feast day. So whenever you run across the new moon terminology in the Old Testament, it's a feast. The story continues. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, well, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? Now, David has presented a plan. Um, we've seen Jonathan. He's pleading with Jonathan for help with his clan, plan, but there's an interesting basis as to why he's pleading for help. He says, Jonathan, you've brought me into covenant with you, so I know I can rely upon you. I know I can trust in you. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 17, you remember that after David killed Goliath, Jonathan and David became best friends, and Jonathan and David made a covenant together before the Lord to be faithful to one another, to be true with one another, and to be loyal to one another. Put yourself in David's shoes at this point. The world is falling apart around him. He doesn't know who is safe. He doesn't know who is a spy. He doesn't know who is on Saul's side intending to kill him. He has no idea what to do or where to go. But there's one person, one person he knows that he can trust in and rely on, and that is Jonathan, because Jonathan has made a promise before God to be a faithful, true, loyal friend. In fact, he said here, um, show, deal, deal kindly with your servant. That is the Hebrew word hesed. In other words, show me faithful, loyal love. When your world is falling apart, when you don't know who to turn to, when your day has been terrible, the person that you run to is somebody that you are in covenant with. Somebody who has promised to be faithful, loyal, and true to you. At this point, it was Jonathan for David. But for you, if you're married, you have somebody like that right now. Somebody who is your Jonathan in your David world. I was doing some premarital counseling with a young couple this past week, and I was studying this text, and I, I talked to him. I said, you know, this text is a good picture of what your marriage is supposed to be like. You're about ready to come before God and make a covenant with one another. For better, or for, for better or worse, for richer or for poorer, 
in sickness and in health till death do us part. I will be faithful to you. I will love you. I will be your loyal friend. So when your world falls apart, the one safe place you can go to where you're always going to find love and you're always going to find support is me. Isn't that what a marriage is supposed to be about? That's why you make a covenant when you get married. You make a covenant before God, just like Jonathan did with David. Now, some of you may say, well, that's good for maybe married people, but I'm not married. So who do I go to who has made a covenant with me? Who would be faithful and loyal to me when my world is falling apart? His name is Jesus Christ. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we get out the cup and we say, this covenant, this is the new covenant, which is in my blood that Jesus has promised to be faithful to you, to be loyal to you. He loves you. He will never leave you. He died for you. He forgives your sin. No matter what you have done, no matter how many times you have failed him, you may leave him, but he will not leave you. Isn't it great to have a God who has covenanted to be faithful to us even when we fail him? So, this is all about covenant. David can go to Jonathan because he has somebody who's covenanted before God to be faithful, loyal, and true. We can go to our spouse who has covenanted before God that they will be faithful, loyal, and true to us. But most importantly, we can go to Jesus, the one person who will never turn his back on us or ever let us down. The story continues. And Jonathan said, well, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father to, that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? <laughs> you think I'm going to kill you, Jonathan? Or David, no way. Then David said to Jonathan, well, who will tell me if my, your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. In other words, let's get away from any spies. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed towards David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. I promise that I will tell you what I find out from my dad. I promise before God I'll tell you. And then I want to focus in on this very last part here, the last line. May the Lord be with you as he's been with my father. At this point, we realize that Jonathan knows he will not be the next king. We don't know how he knows this, but he knows that David is the one who has been chosen by God, anointed by God, and will be the next king that Saul will go down, and that Jonathan as his son will not take his place. 
But rather, rather than, re, than resisting this and insisting that he become king, Jonathan puts his ego beside and gets behind God's king. May God be with you just like he was with my father. In other words, what Jonathan realizes, he is not a man who's filled with ego, not a man who's trying to build up his kingdom, trying to make more of himself. He's like, it doesn't matter about my future and my life. What matters is I get behind you because you're God's chosen king, and I get behind building God's kingdom, not building my kingdom. Boy, is that rare to find. And here I put down in your, in your outlines the key point I want you to remember. This is so important for us. God often works through people that let go of their ego and their time to get behind what God is doing instead of focusing on what is best for them. The Lord, or God often works through people that let go of their ego and their time to get behind what God is doing instead of focusing on what's best for them. Do you want God to use you in a significant way in this world? What we need to do is say, it's not about me building my kingdom, making much of myself, but what matters is not my kingdom. What matters is the kingdom of Jesus Christ God's own son. And I'm going to get behind serving in that kingdom. I'm going to get behind helping that king and sharing about that king. I'm going to help his name be more famous than my name be more famous. And God goes, that's the kind of person I want. That's the kind of person I'm going to use. Now let me just get uncomfortable for people here a little bit. It is so easy for us to come to church and sit. So easy to come to church and sing. So easy to come to church and drink coffee and then leave and feel like I've been built up because church is all about me. That's not the kind of person that God's going to use in a significant way in this world. The people that God will use in a significant way to build his kingdom are the people who come in the door and say, I'm not here to sit. I'm here to serve. I'm here to help build God's kingdom up. I'm here to serve others, whether it means I'll be a greeter. It's only 15 minutes extra in my life. I'm here to even work in the nursery because that way when a young family comes into church, they know there's a smiling face and their children will be taken care of well. I'm here to serve them like Jesus has served me. And God goes, that's exactly the kind of person I want to use in this world. Do you want to be somebody that makes a difference? Do not look at yourself as somebody who wants to sit and just absorb the king. Come to church saying, I'm here to serve the king. It's less about me. It's okay if I'm inconvenient. It's okay if it's a little bit of a sacrifice. Jonathan is going to about lose his life in a few verses to save, to serve God's king, to risk his life for God's king. We can certainly do a little more to serve our king in a non-confrontational way. Now the story continues. Jonathan says, if I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love for my house forever. 
when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Now what typically would happen is when a new king was ever installed in a kingdom, all the old king's children and descendants would be killed. What it began with is David saying, I need help, Jonathan. I need help from you. Jonathan's flipped it. He says, God's going to take care of you. I need you and you become king. I need you to be merciful to me and my descendants later. Because the truth is, God will keep his word. You will be anointed king. And I am not going to be in the matrix of it all. Then Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Now, how does this carry out in the future? Will David become king? Yes. Will Jonathan not become king? Of course. Jonathan's hope is that he would be second in command. He'd be there to support David as his best friend. This is what he says in the 23rd chapter. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of, my, of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. Now, it didn't work out that way. Actually, Jonathan dies defending his father on Mount Gilboa. But at least we know what Jonathan was hoping. But when David does take over and become king, he keeps his promise to Jonathan's family and his descendants, and he doesn't kill them off. We read this in 2 Samuel 21. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that he that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The story continues. As Jonathan said to him, tomorrow is the new moon. You will be missed because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was at hand and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy, saying, Go find the arrows. And if I say to the boy, Look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them. Then you are to come. For as the Lord lives, it's safe for you, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, Look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. So if he says, The arrows are on this side of you, come back. Well, it's safe for you to come, David. If I say the arrows are beyond you, David, you have to go. You have to go away. It's not safe for you here. Sort of simple communication strategy. Then he says, as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. God is our witness to our covenant. So David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. And Jonathan sat opposite. And Abner sat, beside, sat by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something has happened to him. He's not clean. Surely he's not clean. Saul suspects that the reason David's not there is because of some 
ritual impurity, which usually takes 24 hours for that to be ritually clean. Saul assumes David is very um, careful to obey God's law. He sort of seems to miss the idea that maybe David is not super excited to sit because he's already tried to kill him three times and he'd be sitting next to his father-in-law while he's holding a steak knife. Like, I don't think I'd want to sit at that dinner table anyway. You know, this is not the kind of guy you want to be around. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? And Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Remember I told you earlier that Jonathan is not a good liar? Saul is pretty good. He's been doing that all along. But here is where Jonathan messes up. He does not use the exact lie that David told him to tell. There's one word he changes. You don't see it in the English, but you can see it in the Hebrew, where it says, let me get away and see my brothers. In Hebrew, it's literally the word, let me escape. It's the same word used in all the earlier narratives to describe what David did every time Saul tried to kill him. He successfully escaped. This clues Saul in that David has just escaped from an attempt on his life. Now, game's up. Saul freaks out. And here's what he says. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? Now that sounds like all biblical words. We know that Saul's angry, but it doesn't seem to make much sense to us. Let me unpack what he says to his own son. You are the son of a perverted, rebellious woman. He throws Jonathan's mom under the bus. You ain't speaking about my mom that way. You know, you get you upset if somebody spoke about your mom that way, especially if your father spoke about your mother that way. And he said this, he said, um, you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame. In other words, you're my son, but I am ashamed of you. And then he says, and to the shame of your mother's nakedness, which is a Hebrew colloquialism to say, I wish you had never been born. Ouch. Those kind of words are like toothpaste. They come out of the tube real easy, but they don't go back in the tube real well, do they? Saying to your son, I wish you had never been born. I'm completely ashamed of you. Now, some of you have grown up in very healthy homes. Others of you have grown up in dysfunctional homes where you had parents 
that use their words and their language in an abusive way. And you know the pain of this venom, the sting of this kind of poison from a father to a son. This is terrible stuff. Now, how does this unfold? Saul then says, as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you kingdom shall be established. Then he says, therefore, for he shall surely die. Jonathan, you know exactly where David is right now. You go get him. This is your father commanding you. Get him and bring him here, and I am going to kill him right now. I'm ashamed of you. Wish you had never even been born. Now, Jonathan's credit, after he has been bullied by his father, he doesn't cave to this horrid pressure. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? I'm like, what has he done? And look at his dad's response. Then Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. Boy, that was an understatement, wasn't it? Saul just tried to kill his own son. He pulled out his reviver and fired a bullet directly at him that just happened to miss. Well, let's pause for a moment. Think about what took place. When Saul chose to harden his heart against God, when he chose to rebel against God, and when he chose not to repent of his sin, much earlier in this book, I am sure he never could look down the road and realize that one day, this hardness in his heart, this love of sin would leave him, lead him to the point where he was cussing out his own son, telling him he wished he'd never been born, and then taking a shot at his own firstborn son. There's a lesson in here for us. Many times in our lives, there's little bits of sin that we just like to tolerate, just sort of live with. Don't repent of, just sort of enjoy. Keeping that secret side of our world. Oh, it won't influence us. I know the Bible says this, but it's not going to really change me. Oh, yes, it will. Sin tolerated over time leeches into all of a person's personality and all of a person's character, and they do not end up living a holy life. They just become, they live more and more of a dark and sinful life. Over time, sin changes you. This is why it must be repented of. Hebrews reminds us of this. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you, may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, which is exactly what's happened to Saul that's brought him to this dark day. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. Well, I could see the idea of losing your appetite after your father takes a shot at your life, says, I wish you'd never been born. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David, and with him, a little boy. It's time to warn David. And he said to the boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. And as the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him 
And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? That's code, right? Get out of here, David. It's not safe. And then he adds this. And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. Were those extra words intended for the little boy? They're encouraged for David, intended for him. Hurry, be quick, do not stay, get out of here as fast as you possibly can. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from behind the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. David shows great deference and respect to Jonathan. He bows to him three times. I may be the coming king, but you are still the king's son right now. And it says they kissed and they wept with one another. This is an emotional time where they're breaking apart. Now let me just address something here. Some people look at this, they go, oh look, here's David and Jonathan kissing one another. Must be a homosexual relationship. No. That's just looking at it from your modern, twisted, perverted American culture. This was 3,000 years ago in Middle Eastern culture. Have you ever seen what Arabs do when they greet one another? What do they do? They kiss one another on the cheek. This is part of the culture. They are hugging and kissing one another on the cheek, crying because they're best friends that know that they're going to have to depart. By the way, they're only going to see each other one time after this. And they're probably going to end up on opposite sides of a battlefield fighting one another. This is an incredibly painful moment. And it's this covenant of faithfulness and loyalty and love between them that is going to sustain them in this difficult season that's in front of them. Then Jonathan said to David, after they've cried and hugged, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And they rose and departed. And Jonathan went into the city. Now, what can we learn from this? I've given you some applications along the way. Uh, Let me give you three applications here at the end. The first one is this. Jonathan is an example of someone who chose faithfulness to his future king, even when it alienated him from his family and almost cost him his life. Folks, are we living for the day we will stand before King Jesus in the future or just for the demands of life we face today? Jonathan was faithful to his future king, not just living for his present king, often the evil demands of his present king, his, his father. Sometimes I think Jesus might have been thinking about Jonathan when he wrote this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Loyalty to King Jesus comes before everything. 
And for Jonathan, loyalty to David, God's future king, had to come before even his family. Second thing I think is important. Jonathan is an example of what it looks like to keep a covenant when it hurts, not just live by what is convenient. Examples of men and women who keep their covenants instead of living for what is convenient at the moment are in short supply in marriage and the business world. As Christians, we're called to model what it means to keep our covenant promises to others, just as Jesus keeps his covenant promise to us. Isn't that true? It would have been so easy for Jonathan to just go by along with what was easy. Just turn David over. His father is cussing him out. His father is trying to kill him. So it would have been so easy to go with what is convenient instead of live by the promise that he made before God to be faithful and loyal to David, his friend. Around us, our world lives by conveniences. You and I, as God's children, are called to model faithful covenant love to our spouse, that when we get into a business contract, we keep our word, and when it becomes inconvenient, we do not break our word. We model covenant living. And lastly is the one I said earlier, which is so important. Jonathan reminds us that God often accomplishes his work in this world through people who sacrifice their time and their ego to get behind what God is doing. If I want God to accomplish his work in this world through my life, it begins by sacrificing my time and ego to get behind what God is doing. That my life is not about me building my kingdom, but it's getting behind God building his kingdom. And our life is about our coming and future king, Jesus Christ not about me. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the challenge of looking at Jonathan's life. A man who could see the reality of his coming and future King David and pledged his loyalty and faithfulness to him no matter what may come. May we keep our eyes on the coming future kingdom of Jesus Christ. May we live faithful to him no matter how difficult it is in our life to do that today. And may we be men and women who are the kind of people that you would delight to use. Of course, it's not all about us being king and us building our kingdoms, but we're far more concerned with exalting and worshiping Jesus, the coming king, and building his kingdom here in Spirit Lake and ultimately around the world. And that is the most important thing we can do with our lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thank you for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.